Hello, everyone. This is Martin Willis with the Antique Auction Forum, and welcome to show number 113 on Clocks with Bob Frischman. couple of announcements. You can follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. Those icons are on our website. You can leave comments on podcasts, or you can contact me at info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's show. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. So I'm in Andover, Massachusetts, and I'm at Bob Frischman's Bell Time. How are you doing, Bob? I'm good, thank you. Bell Time clocks. I said almost all that, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I, got, I got the idea for the name because uh, Winslow Homer did a, uh, an engraving for Harper's Weekly entitled Bell Time that shows workers leaving the mills in Lawrence. So at the oh. time I was thinking about starting my business in 1992, I bought that engraving, and it inspired me to call my business that. You didn't buy the original? I did. Uh, well, I bought <laughs> an engraving uh, uh, from just... the original Harper's Weekly. Oh, so, okay. Uh, I do own it. In fact, it's on the floor behind you. All right. All right. <laughs> so as you can listen, or you may be able to hear this in the background, there's some clocks ticking away, which I would imagine. Uh, we're right now in your shop, correct? That's right. It's yeah. in addition to my home here in uh, the historic section of Andover called Shawshane Village. Poor Street, and there's no real Poor Street in Andover, really. Well, I hear that a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Poor family was one of the earliest settlers of Andover, and their homestead is right up the street. But uh, yeah. people often comment about how they can't believe there's a Poor Street in Andover. I thought you moved here so you get more business, you know, saying you're poor and you need the work. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, uh, yeah, it's it's a good theory, but on the contrary, <laughs> I need less work because uh, this is the kind of business where there aren't many of us, and yeah. New England is full of broken clocks. So. Uh, you you know, I spoke to a clock person a few months ago in the Woburn area, uh, Massachusetts, and he said that he couldn't get to a clock for four months. And mm. so that's what's going on. Is that going on with you as well? Yeah, I, I get buried quickly if I don't keep uh, retreating from, from work because it's uh, uh-huh. in there, uh, especially in New England, but this may apply to other parts of the country too. Many, many people have grandma's clock or bought one or ten at an auction. <laughs> and uh, by God, they want them to work. And yeah. you know, the clock guys that are left are too busy, and uh, they're getting older and older. And uh, nobody's coming out of high school with the guidance counselor telling them to be a clock repair person. So yeah. it, it's a problem. Let's talk about that right off the bat. Um, you know, I I do bring this subject up quite a bit in these podcasts, and that is our young people getting involved in certain segments. And you're not you're not really seeing a lot of people getting involved in. Horology, as far as clock repair at this point? Uh, zero is probably the number that comes Whoa. to mind. Really? Uh, occasionally, one reason I set up an antique show is in addition to hoping to sell clocks is to try to you know, do, do the missionary work required not only to get them interested in clock, but get them interested in repairing. And occasionally there's somebody uh, under age 50 who says, well, this is, uh, this, this is pretty cool. How do I get started? And occasionally I've given them movements. I've gotten them interested. I give away all kinds of you know, old issues of the association magazine, the Collector Association magazine. 
and uh, some of them get into it to some level. Uh, often they think they're going to get into it deeper till they find out how uh, darn hard it is. Yeah. So, but if you're listening to the podcast, and a, long, a lot of young people do, um, I would imagine that it would be a pretty strong career to get into if there's less and less people doing it. And there's a lot of clocks out there. It's it's part of the whole problem, and I won't get on that soapbox, which is really vocational training for for the uh, large percentage of high school kids that don't need to go to college, don't want to go to college, mm-hmm. probably aren't going to get a good job even if they finish college mm-hmm. just because of the, the way the society is now. And as people have pointed out, we're running out of plumbers and electricians, and we're also running out of clock repair people. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain to the listener what exactly you do? Because you have a lot of things going on, on the internet. You're very active. You do a lot of lectures. But what is what is Bob Frischman? What is he? Mm-hmm. What is your day like? Uh, the way I make my money, principally, is by repairing other people's clocks. Uh-huh. Today, as, as an example, uh, someone brought in a probably uh, an 1880s Seth Thomas shelf clock. Mm-hmm. And like all mechanical clocks, at some point, regularly in their extended lives, they stop working because uh, of of accumulating wear and dirt, which requires me to take them apart and deal with the wear and dirt and put them back together. And they're going to keep running, hopefully, when, when I'm done. Mm-hmm. So principally, day by day, I'm fixing people's clocks. And some of those include modern clocks. People have gone to Jordan's Furniture or some other place like that in the last... 20 years, bought one of those Howard Miller clocks or Ridgeway grandfather clocks, expecting that they will last a lifetime as all the literature hanging on those clocks promises. (laughs) And within 15 or 20 years, the clock stops and they're irate until it's explained to them that these are machines like your car. They're actually a much less sophisticated machine than your car. And if they aren't serviced periodically and Mm -hmm. regularly, they stop working like any machine will. Clean and lube, right? A lot of it. Well, it's... That sounds simpler than it is, and the term that we use and many of us use is overhaul because Uh you actually have to disassemble the machine. You can't just poke the vacuum hose in there and spray it with WD-40 and you're good to go. Isn't there like a vibrating tank or something that I've seen people use? Ultrasonic cleaners. Yes, okay. And uh, the the myth when those... (laughs) Vibrating. Well, you're close. The the myth that started when those came out is that you didn't have to do that disassembly. You just drop that thing in there, throw the switch with this strong chemical in there, and it would come out good as new. Uh Uh-huh. not only is that not true, if you don't do some disassembly, you actually wreck stuff inside from the wow. uh, from the chemical, which is a strong ammonia solution. Wow. But, yeah. uh, uh, but it, obviously that type of dunk doesn't deal with wear issues. It gets yeah. rid of the dirt, but if the clock, other things are worn, and often they are the bearings require bushing where you ream it out and put a little sleeve in there that reestablishes the correct size and location of the little hole the gear turns in. Uh, the clock is not going to work. In fact, it will probably work not as well because that dirt was probably helping keep the gear in place (laughs) until there was so much dirt that everything stopped. Yeah, yeah. And do you actually sell clocks too or is it just repair? Yeah, the other part of my day, Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for the reminder (laughs) because these days are long and and busy, uh, is that I buy and sell clocks as well. 
I say, and it's actually pretty true, is that the only reason I sell clocks is so I can buy more. Because uh, I've sold more than 1,400 clocks in my time. And really obviously wild. there's no room for 1,400 clocks here yeah. unless I become one of those real clock nuts, yeah. you know, where you can't walk through You'll the house. You'll be on American Hoarders or whatever. Uh, yeah, is. yeah, that's right. Or at Danvers State, the mental hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, at any one time I might have, you know, up to 100 timepieces, but some are small and they're scattered around. And then uh, periodically I do antique shows and I also have many of them uh, shown on my website online, and people buy from me that way as well. Well, we mentioned your website. What is the uh, address of that? It's uh, belltime, B-E-L-L-hyphen-T-I-M-E.com, uh-huh. and my picture's there, and you can see me yakking away on the associated YouTube. Uh, yeah, like uh, 120 thing. YouTube videos or something? Yes, yeah. yeah uh, 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 another uh, sort of online uh, self-help uh, group came here, and uh, told me that uh, that they wanted to do two- and three-minute segments about every possible aspect of, of uh, clock and watch repair and collecting that I could think of. I'm sorry, not even watch, just clock-related. And they said, uh, you, we'd like you to have at least 120. And I, wow. and I gulped. And then when I started to make the list, I got to 120 pretty fast huh. because there's every clock company, there's sort of every aspect of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, how they work and where they hung and the styles and types. So uh, that act turned out to not be a problem. And now mm-hmm. if you have an old Ansonia clock and you do a search on Ansonia, it's a good chance pretty high up on the list my little video is going to pop up for two or three minutes. I'm telling you uh, in the, as briefly as I can about the Ansonia clock company. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, one of the clocks that I've always loved is the Chelsea Ship's Bell. And um, I, I remember just a few short years ago they were selling for pretty high money. It seems like they're a little more reasonable now. Have you? Do you keep your eye on the market on what is hot and what is not as far as clocks go? Yes. Uh, one reason uh, is because I also probably 30 to 40 days a year work for one of the country's largest anti-clock auction houses, which is based in Wyndham, New Hampshire. It's uh, Bob Schmidt's oh, auction yes. company. Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you catalog? I catalog and photograph probably the last auction. I did perhaps almost a half of the uh, clock auction component of it. He also has watches in there. So several hundred of those clocks were not only described and photographed by me, but I provided the auction estimates. Oh, so yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at knowing th- what things sell for. Uh, I would say Chelsea uh, has has long-term enduring value. I, I, I haven't seen prices go down particularly with Chelsea's. Uh, the, the only ones that are, quote, outrageously priced are usually the very big ones. The large dials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they go up exponentially. Eight and, eight, eight and ten inch Eight, style. ten and twelve. Eight, twelve. Uh, yeah, even twelves yeah. are out there too, but some of those are in the fifteen to 20,000 range just because so wow. few of them were made. Wow. I mean, recently, Chelsea... Um, serial numbers all their clocks and they've now passed a million uh, so there are a lot of Chelsea clocks out there even though a number of those Chelsea's more recently still, still going Chelsea's the only remaining mechanical clock manufacturer in the country uh, they're in Chelsea, wow. Massachusetts, and uh, not long ago, some few years ago, uh, they were purchased and essentially saved uh, by the son of the owner of Boston Scientific. Oh. So, uh, to my knowledge, they no longer have capitalization problems, and we will uh, continue to see Chelsea clocks for sale at stores, uh, you know, at high-end jewelry stores in most towns and in Boston. But they're also quartz, too? Are they quartz? Yes, yeah. yeah. A pretty large percentage <laughs> of their 
You said that solemnly. And yes, that, and I agree. Yeah. yeah, well, they need to. Uh, you know, they, they need to survive as a company yeah. too. Uh-huh. And a big part of what they do are uh, are promotional things for uh, retiring mm-hmm. employees and uh, convention gifts at a higher end. So uh, th- yep. they need to do that, but they also need that that uh, traditional heavy brass case mechanical ship's bell clock to give, you know, when the president yeah. of the company retires. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I always love the, the ship's bells. They're just beautiful. Um, and I think Chelsea makes the best of them. You know, there are other ones. Uh, I don't know if – what's your opinion on that? I, I think Chelsea's one of the better ship's bell clocks. The only other one that I know of currently in production – uh, although maybe they have different names on the dial, uh, the Hermley Clock Company, that's the huge German uh, uh, oh, okay. uh, clock manufacturer, also makes a couple of versions of their mechanical ship's bell movement, and it goes into various cases, including Chelsea. Chelsea also sells the ship strike clock, mm-hmm. which has this lower-cost German movement in it. Oh. So... Uh, you know, you can cavalierly say, well, you know, they're junk, but essentially they, they ring the bells the same way, just mm-hmm. uh, maybe only for 15 years, not 150. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, lo- other local clocks. Of course, there's the Willard family. Then there's Howard Clock. Um, and, of course, uh, it, was, it was Simon Willard that was the uh, first patent maker of the banjo clock, correct? Yes, Simon uh, working in uh, first in his uh, in his family home in Grafton, Massachusetts, where there's is now the Willard House Clock and uh, f- and Family Museum, where you can go to this beautiful homestead in the rural Grafton and see many many beautiful Willard right. family clocks. Now, what about uh, Roxbury? Was that a Secondary? The the family, uh, some of the like Simon and his brother uh, Aaron, Aaron, who was yeah. much more of the businessman, the entrepreneur. Uh, clearly, they needed to expand their market from rural Grafton. So Roxbury at the time was was part of just the tiny little tidal flooded neck that connected Boston to the mainland essentially. And Roxbury was there, and Aaron built his manufactory right at the neck there, so everyone coming and going would pass it. So he hmm. he did much higher numbers of clock production than his brother Simon, but Simon was the innovator, the inventor, more of the craftsman. He uh, developed other types of clocks in addition to the banjo clock. He never called it a banjo clock, by the way. It was the improved timepiece, and it was only decades later it began being called a banjo clock. But he was trying to develop... Uh, a relatively inexpensive, reliable, weekly wind, eight-day clock. Because at the Mm. time, your alternatives were both much more expensive and complicated. They were uh, English table clocks or bracket clocks, Mm -hmm. or they were English or American long-case clocks. So he, uh, he wanted something simpler, less expensive, equally accurate and reliable as possible and came up with the form of the banjo clock with the reverse painted uh, uh, glasses and throats and that distinctive style which accommodates a weight drop inside the movement as well as room for the pendulum to swing in the lower box. Yeah. Now, the what I had heard, or my father and I used to talk a lot about clocks, um, my father being in the business before me, and he told me that Simon Willard made his first tall case or uh, long case clock at 12 years old. Did you ever hear anything like that? 
I didn't hear that, but I, maybe if I reread some of my Simon Willard books, I would find that in there. There are uh, apocryphal stories about all the Willards and Simon sure. in particular because there's this romantic notion that he was you know, bent over a bench by candlelight, squinting as he hand-filed every gear tooth. And <laughs> number one, it's unlikely, and number two, it's virtually impossible to make a clock like that. If you go to the Willard House Museum, there's a recreation of the shop, and there are gear-cutting machines in there. You know, they're rudimentary and hand-powered, mm-hmm. uh, but the level of sophistication, both technical and intellectual, was might have been beyond what a 12-year-old boy could have done at the time. But uh, the the training of all the Willards is, is a bit murky, too, as far as knowing how they learned what they learned. Hmm. And at 12 years old, back then, people, uh, young men, were often already involved in this trade they were going to practice later in life. Mm-hmm. So there is a chance of that. But if he just, you know, picked up a... You know, a, a, a piece of brass and made a working clock, uh, that's yeah. unlikely. Yeah. Hmm. Now, there are sometimes European movements in a Willard case, right? Well, you've, uh, you've backed into the buzzsaw of, the, uh, <laughs> of a controversy that's still going on, although I think uh, uh, the proponents of that notion are, are probably correct. English is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But there's no question that Simon Willard uh, made his own clocks in many instances. What we're more talking about are long case clocks coming out of the manufactory of Aaron Willard, the brother, and then uh, Aaron Willard Jr., Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly with tall clocks, because uh, Robert Cheney, who we talked about before we started here, who was really a Willard clock expert, uh, he he began to notice that in successive examples of, of Willard tall case clocks, there was substantial kind of stylistic differences, not really mechanical, but stylistic differences in the components. And he's thinking, if this guy was sitting there making clock after clock, why would the shape of this piece be different? Why would this be slightly different? Why would this hole be in a different place? And he came to realize that uh, that probably most of these movements, not the innovative, unusual ones, but the more standard eight-day clock movements originated in England, either as complete movements or as clock sets, which arrived here in unfinished condition and then were assembled and finished by people like the Willards in their factory. And there are known examples of packaged clock sets and movements that came on English ships uh, around that time and almost certainly were used in a lot of the Willard clocks. You know, it kind of upsets the notion of the Willard owner that again sees Simon bent over a bench by <laughs> candlelight. Yeah. But the truth is uh, there's no reason why they wouldn't have done that because they could get them from Birmingham, England, much more easily and less expensively than some apprentice or journeyman who was probably about to run away to western Massachusetts or Ohio to get into business himself and not be uh, working anymore for for his boss, Aaron, or Simon. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't even know if we mentioned that these are 18th and early 19th century clock shops, right? I mean, that... Yes, uh, certainly the Willards uh, began being active in the late 1700s, and the banjo clock appeared early in the 1800s. And uh, by the second half of the the 1800s, the Willards weren't in business anymore. So, yes, Mm -hmm. we're talking about that. And we also, in those same early years of the 19th century, that's when true mass production of clocks emerged in Connecticut. 
and mm-hmm. you know slowly. Eli Terry is yes, one of them. yes, and slowly uh, uh, the, the 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 Willards could only could only compete at the high end for the clock customers because more and more inexpensive clocks began uh, spitting out of the Connecticut factories, which really were the uh, origins of the Industrial Revolution in America. It was the first time that that they produced huge numbers of interchangeable parts, truly interchangeable parts. Wow. Uh, The story was that the Springfield Armory began that in the manufacturing of muskets, but still, the, they, those were sort of rough parts which still had to be hand-assembled, hand-filed, so the musket would fire and not kill you in the process. <laughs> so clocks really, Eli Terry uh, accepted the Porter contract. It's, it's a, you know, a very famous story of him agreeing to attempt to make 4,000 clock movements, wooden clock movements, in three years. And, uh, and everyone thought he was crazy, but he had it figured out, harnessing water power and using rudimentary jigs and, and tooling. He could produce truly interchangeable parts where whoever was assembling that clock could just reach in the box, pull out the fourth wheel, and it was going to work. Wow. Uh, you know, all they, and they, yeah. they would all work. And the price of clocks then truly became uh, affordable to not just affluent, affluent Americans. Uh-huh. Now, I think of Bristol, Connecticut. There was a lot of clock companies there, right? That's certainly a place where there were clock manufacturing companies. The story of Eli Terry began in Plymouth, in Plymouth Hollow, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, uh, interestingly uh, was also where Seth Thomas, who worked with the Eli Terry, established his business. He's probably one of the most famous names in American clock making. Mm -hmm. And the town of Plymouth renamed themselves Thomaston in his honor after the Civil War. How about that? So you mentioned just a minute ago about the wooden clock movements and i've had a number of clocks and they're uh that are wooden uh, and all, uh, always been trouble do you ever work on those yes but i don't guarantee my work in the same way that i do with brass sure. brass and steel movements mm-hmm. uh normally if people come to me with a wooden works clocks first of all i tell them Almost always, these are daily wind clock, 30-hour right, clocks. Hours, yeah. So uh, if you don't want to think about winding your clock every day, there's no point in this. The other is that uh, uh, the reason that Woodenworks clocks weren't exported was bec- uh, overseas on oceans and over water mm-hmm. is that they don't respond well to big changes of humidity yeah. and temperature to some degree, but humidity is the main issue. So if I fix your Woodenworks clock, your pillar and scroll clock, for example, in January, it may not want to run in July. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So if I almost certainly I can make your Woodenworks clock work and it's going to work when you get home. But if yeah. it works two months from now, I can't say, and I'm not going to get married to it and keep yeah. fixing it for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing, too, is that the inherent problem with Woodenworks clocks is even though for the Woodenworks gears they use cherry, which is a strong, dense wood, you still have about a third of the teeth where the, the grain's essentially running the wrong way, and it's relatively easy for the strain of intermeshing teeth to snap off gear teeth. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can do your dental work and replace these uh, these wooden works teeth, but uh, uh, if a whole bunch of them shear off, you're in trouble. And sometimes uh, you forget when you're winding the clock which way to turn the crank, and then you uh, shear off a lot of teeth very quickly. Wow. So yeah. uh, they're great artifacts if you want to you know, wind it up a couple of turns when you're having company for dinner. Yeah. That's great. But if you want a clock that's going to run every day and you want me to fix it, uh, you're going to expect to 
you know, have me fixing it a lot probably. Now, what is – can you swap out of movement in that, but you'll hurt the value of the clock unless the clock's not too valuable anyway? In a wooden works clock? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of wooden movements around still. And, in fact, uh, there's a guy in Connecticut named George Bruno who made a big study of this whole thing and actually developed the tooling and the plans and everything to not only make wooden works parts, replacement parts, but also entire movements. Wow. So you can actually buy a brand-new uh, fourth wheel or a brand-new entire Terry-style wooden works movement to put in your clock. Uh, if If you're replacing only components, I don't think anybody cares and you know they're not going to turn away your clock because you've got a new wheel in the movement Mm -hmm. if you say it's this is a brand new george bruno movement in the pillar and scroll movement i I, that that probably would affect it but you have to keep in mind too we've got almost a darwinian process here (laughs) where the ones that were no good went into the dump or the wood stove in 1830 you know so 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 they're gone and nobody's struggling to make breeding yeah (laughs) exactly nobody's struggling to make those work anymore Mm -hmm. so the clocks you're dealing with mostly from the 1820s or 50s or even 1920s are the ones that probably were better to begin with and have lasted and the and the real clunkers uh they're long gone yeah now i want to talk about a controversial person um, in the clock business, and that is Elmer Stennis. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you, your wife, can you, your wife wrote an article for Yankee Magazine? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, it's, obviously, uh, as a writer, she uh, looks for interesting topics and ones that relate to clocks uh, you know, interest me too. And um, uh, Jean Shinto is her name. She uh, works, uh, writes principally for Maine Antique Digest these days. Uh, but back when this article uh, was written, she off- offered it, the idea, and then the article to, uh, to Yankee Magazine. Yeah. And uh, even though the whole story is sort of much bigger and, in fact, kind of more sordid than uh, Yankee Magazine published, mm-hmm. uh, it's part of our, our, our legacy in a sense. And I think there's not relatives around now that are going to sue me for saying anything. And, and it's true anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is your best defense. But, uh, yeah. uh, but Elmer Stennis back, I guess, in the 60s and 70s, uh, made a very good business out of uh, uh, making beautiful and not, not fraudulent, but publicly, uh, publicly uh, produced reproductions of earlier styles of long case and banjo and certain nice styles of banjo, girandole clock. Mm-hmm. grandmother clocks, that kind of thing. Uh, he was active down in the Weymouth. Yeah. One, one TikTok lane was his address there. That's right, yeah. 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 And um, uh, again, he, he did this. He had uh, eventually a very able assistant woodworker cabinet maker named Foster Campos who carried on the work after Elmer died. Uh, but the, it's, it's a sad story in a way where Elmer was, yes. a, was a hard-drinking guy yeah. and uh, uh, eventually... Uh, Probably uh, not sober, as it was attested by people who saw him that day. He shot his wife, killed her. Uh, but through, uh, I guess, certain uh, machinations of our legal system, served only a couple of years yeah. in uh, the Massachusetts Correctional Institution and in he Plymouth. he made clocks and while he was in prison. Exactly. Those clocks are stamped MCIP right. inside. Yeah. Some, some think that stands for made clocks in prison, but it, uh, we think... There's one on, on parole, right? 
Well, once yes, one of them is yes. out on parole. Yes, or that's like that. right. Yeah. Those are stamped yeah. there too. So, yeah. uh, uh, and some of the work was done by inmates and himself in the prison. Uh, with Foster Campos, that assistant coming and going with uh, raw materials and uh, the finished clocks coming out and all afterwards. So uh, Foster, uh, so Elmer uh, uh, was released from prison, went back into the clock business, and uh, some time later uh, was shot and killed in his own bed. By uh, his son. Uh, his son had a, uh, an excellent alibi at the time, so those allegations weren't proven, even though the next wife, who was in bed with Elmer, uh, claims that it was the son who, uh, who shot them and shot her, too, and wounded her but didn't kill her. Uh, so I never heard the part about wounding his uh Yes, third third wife at third the time. Wife. Yes, yeah, yeah. And she, we met her. She, uh, uh, because there were there occasionally auctions of Stennis related material that uh, that she was at. Mm-hmm. So, so now Stennis clocks are quite collectible. Very collectible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they bring good money. One problem is that um, uh, there's a, there are a lot of Stennis clocks out there that weren't made by Stennis. They have, uh, because of their popularity and value, there's a lot of fakes of those too. And there was Stennis material that was sold out of his workshop uh, that could be incorporated into these fakes. But there are specific markers for genuine Stennis clocks, including his little B trademark that's on things. Parts were numbered and dated and things. So uh, if, if you don't know, you're going to buy a Stennis clock that isn't a Stennis clock, but it isn't impossible as it often is even with Willard clocks to be totally sure of what you're buying. Right. Um, one of the clock companies also that I really like, I think I mentioned it earlier, is Howard. Um, and I love Howard. Another weight-driven clock that I'm thinking of right now is the regulators. I see you have a nice, beautiful regulator in the back but the one i'm thinking about did they call them lighthouse clocks uh no the uh a lighthouse clock was a simon willard style that looked like kind oh, of a miniature okay. lighthouse yeah i know exactly with the dome on the top yes yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh but what was the one that howard did that was so uh, it was like the banjo but it was called something else well there's a couple of things you might be speaking of because they were howard their model 70 regulator uh, was was one of the styles that was purchased by the U.S. Lighthouse Establishment. That's what I'm thinking. And of. you would see them okay. in picture period photographs of the on the walls of the lighthouse keeper's house or his yeah. office. Yeah. So uh, so Howard made a, a number of styles, and, and the Howard 70 was one of the popular ones. It's more a larger round head with a rectangular drop below it. Those uh, reportedly were in every tea station in Boston at one time, mm-hmm. disappeared. And to flip back to Stennis for a minute. Uh, these things were stacked up like cordwood in some warehouse, and Stennis was buying them by the dozens in order to use the movements, because they're basically banjo clock movements, in his reproduction clocks. Wow. So a lot of early Stennis clocks have Howard movements in them until he ran out of them and they had That's to that, right. use them. So a lot of Howard 70 regulators that now can sell for a few thousand dollars you know, were being raided for their movements and <laughs> went into the wood stove or the dump. Oh, no. <laughs> also. But uh, wow. there's a lot of them left. There's one hanging on the wall uh, over your shoulder. Uh, so uh, so they exist. They have those distinctive black, gold, and red uh, yeah. reverse-painted glass tablets. Yeah. But, of course, they were all commercial clocks. Nobody uh, bought a Howard clock like that for their home in the old days. 
uh, now that collectors have them and people like their simplicity and almost uh, you know arts and crafts kind of look to, to them. But they were designed and sold, uh, and they were expensive relatively, as commercial use and commercial quality really? clocks. Had no idea. Mm-hmm. And they're mostly uh, time only. No, yes, because they're not uh, chiming clocks. Yes, because you're now in the realm of regulator clocks. It's yep. a term that very accurate yes, timing. That term gets stuck on the glasses of clocks you can buy at Sears from Korea, <laughs> but uh, but it used to mean something. <laughs> yeah. and and it was a high accuracy clock that would regulate the timekeeping of uh, clocks and watches in jeweler shops that they were working Jewelers on. Jewelers regulator for one. Yes, I've seen some beautiful clocks at a jeweler. Yes, there's one behind you made by Waltham, the Waltham clock. Company, the big one in the corner oh, yes. that's, that yeah, has a mercury nice. pendulum. Mercury pendulum. And yeah. anything that could interfere with accuracy, like going bong bong and running a whole strike yep. train, uh, was taboo for a true regulator. So certainly yep. Howard clocks would not have. Uh, no. Would not have, and also if it's a weight-driven movement, it's going to be bigger, and you can't squeeze a big movement usually in a banjo clock case, for example. You don't have room for two weights in a larger movement. Yeah. Now, uh, getting back to the mercury pendulum, that was because of atmospheric changes, right? No, temperature. Temperature it was for changes. temperature compensation because a big problem with 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 pendulum clocks is that if the pendulum is made out of a metal like steel that expands and contracts, a pendulum would actually get longer and shorter with temperature changes. Mm -hmm. And there used to be big ones in buildings before there was central heat. So a steel pendulum rod could shrink and grow to the extent that it would affect the timekeeping by many minutes a day even Ah. uh, because the accuracy is determined by the length of the pendulum. So one solution to that was uh, in, was hanging mercury-filled vials at the bottom of a swinging pendulum. So as the pendulum grew longer from the, the day heating up, the mercury in the vial would expand up at the same time that the pendulum rod was expanding <laughs> down. So you essentially had the same functional length of a pendulum, and it would keep better time. Isn't that amazing? Yes, yeah. you had to have the right amount of pendulum and somebody uh, of mercury and uh, somebody smart that put the whole thing together. Uh, but uh, if it was done correctly, you could have accuracy within seconds a month, truly, out of a mechanical ticking machine. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other things you get into as far as clocks go? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the way I keep myself motivated and interested is that many clock-related things also appeal to me. Certainly all the ephemera, I have a large collection of stereo views that show clocks in them. Ah, and yeah. I write regularly for the uh, uh, magazine of the National Association of Watch and Clock Collector that comes out every two months and loves to have articles from guys like me that like to learn and write about the clocks that we're uh, otherwise busy repairing, hopefully, on our workbenches. <laughs> so, uh, so there's the associated issues of the ephemera, uh, project that I love that I've begun doing over the recent years is horology and art. Horology, the art of of, uh, the science of timekeeping. And there are illustrations, paintings, drawings going back to the very beginnings of mechanical timekeeping in the 12th and 13th centuries, which have clocks within the image somewhere. So you can go back to Bruegel and Titian 
Wow. And all the way through Salvatore Dali, of course, everyone says, yeah, oh, have you got melting his melting clock? Yeah, yeah, have you got those? I definitely do. Uh, <laughs> all the way up to Jamie Wyeth, who just uh, within the last month gave me permission to use one of his beautiful uh, oil paintings, uh, which he did on Monhegan Island, showing a young boy standing next to a beautiful antique long case clock. Ah. So every issue of the Clock Collector magazine now has my horology and art feature where I select a single... Uh, image. The first one was a David painting of Napoleon standing in front of a beautiful clock, and that painting's in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So I have a great time where I've, I'm combining art history with uh, clock history and seeing beautiful pictures and also seeing clocks within them that almost never are there by accident. The clock perhaps mm-hmm. is just showing that the person is wealthy, but especially in earlier paintings, the clocks were allegorical. If there was a clock in the painting, it was because you were trying to say something about the sitter, if it was a portrait, or about the scene, uh, if it was a, a landscape or an interior. Oh, wow. In all your years of working on clocks and doing all this that you do, can you think of anything that's happened that was really fascinating Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, certainly it continues to happen, and that's why this isn't boring at all. That's great. Uh, but yeah. the, uh, some people think, oh, you're tied to that workbench doing the same thing day after day. Believe me, that's Crouched not... over making gears. Yes, yeah. uh, believe By me, uh, it yeah. is not like that. <laughs> These clocks uh, have a thousand ways they uh, they want to uh, make you feel like an idiot, and, uh, <laughs> and I've found them all. Uh, uh, maybe that's why I also like uh, studying this stuff, because at least I did doesn't have to tick at the end mm-hmm. of the process. But uh, uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, uh, read David Sobel's book, Longitude, about John Harrison, who in the 18th century uh, developed an accurate enough timekeeper to allow the determination of longitude at sea. So John Harrison's name is, is well known now, uh, as, as, uh, th- mainly through David Sobel's book. Uh, I as I mentioned, I, I also do lecturing at historical societies and things like that. And I was at one where a woman came up to me and said, I have a John Harrison clock. And I hear these kinds of things. And I said, yeah, yeah, great, thank you. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, next. <laughs> <laughs> but sure enough, she called a couple of months later and wanted to bring it to me because it, uh, it needed some repair. And she brought it to me. And it turns out... Uh, This is a clock that disappeared in 1940 uh, when an antique dealer in New York liquidated his shop. And uh, and no one ever since has known where this is. The only reason anyone knew it existed is because there was a grainy black and white photograph of this clock from that dealer's uh, sale catalog in 1940. Uh, And uh, there are people who have looked for this clock ever since. It's unlike any... Are you serious? So this is like a really major find. It's unlike any John Harrison clock before. So the clock showed up here, and in consultation with experts... Uh, it was pretty quickly determined that it's a total fake. It, it's only it says John Harrison on the dial was probably made in the 1920s in London at a time when there were growing numbers of rich. Uh, nouveau riche perhaps collectors a lot of them american that were being fed a lot of stuff from england and and the continent because they wanted to be collectors of significant art and decorative art uh, items so in the 40s this when this picture was taken that was the fake that's the very clock there was certainly (laughs) only one and and the owner who wants to remain anonymous not from embarrassment i don't think maybe just uh wants to do it because it was her ancestor who bought the clock in new york city 
uh, hmm. he, uh, it's clear this is the clock because she has the receipt from this antique dealer in New York. So wow. the, the chain of, uh, of ownership is, is clear there. So this is a clock that uh, uh, has some connection to the work of John Harrison. Some of its attributes indicate that whoever made it was familiar with what Harrison was doing, but in many ways it's just it's a made-up clock from uh, 18th century and 19th century components with some uh, bells and whistles to, uh, to fool somebody who wanted to own a John Harrison clock and didn't know enough about them to, to wonder if this really was one. Wow. Now, if that was a real clock of Harris. What would something like that, any idea what something like that would be worth today? The only way you can even get close is because uh, there was a John Harrison long case clock that belonged to the Time Museum in uh, in Illinois, Rockford, Illinois, which was disbanded and its uh, items were sold at a series of Sotheby's auctions uh, earlier in the, in the 2000s. Uh, uh-huh. That John Harrison long case clock, I'd have to look it up, but certainly it was, uh, I think, you know, more than 100,000. Yeah. And certainly, if this were a real unknown example of a John Harrison, it's a, it's a bracket clock, essentially a table clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it certainly would be tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands. If, wow. Especially, you know, if no one knew that John Harrison made this particular kind of clock and it would have... You know, all kinds of scholarly uh, value as well as financial because here's another part of the John Harrison story. There aren't, there are hardly any John Harrison clocks around because mostly he was spending his time trying to figure out a way to make a, a marine clock that would be accurate and keep these English warships off the rocks. Wow. Wow, mm-hmm. isn't that something? Um, and you said that was a bracket-style clock? Yes. It's a table clock, maybe yeah. standing 20-some inches tall. And when they – a bracket clock, just for the listener – um, a lot of times you see the bracket clocks, and they're kind of big, but they're actually made to sit on a bracket on the on the wall. Yes, it's, it's a way of having a table or shelf clock become a wall clock with this associated bracket. Certainly yeah. many of them never had a bracket and were always designed to sit on a table or a shelf or a big mantle. Mm-hmm. But the name stuck because originally yeah. there was a bracket made out of the same wood decorated the same yeah. that the clock would stand on. And that's actually one of my favorite types of clocks because there's so many of them with beautiful sets of chimes and some of the nice English ones can be very valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like most of them, they have what are called fusees inside. Yeah, fusee which, movement. Yes. yes. Which, can you explain exactly what a fusee movement is? Yes. Um, uh, another problem with spring-driven clocks as opposed to weight-driven, the weights would power the clock, make it tick. But weights are big and require a big case or a space under the clock for the weights to descend in. Mm-hmm. So another way of powering the clock was a coiled spring. Like I'm sure you're all familiar with that, that notion of a coiled-up spring that stores energy and releases it slowly or quickly, depending. So, uh, so once the technology existed to make mainsprings, instead of having weight-driven clocks, a problem, though, was that the clock would tend to run fast when the, it was first wound up and yeah. slow down as the mainspring power decreased. Mm. So th- there were a few fascinating, really, mechanical fixes for that. And one of them is a fusee, which is a cone-shaped gear. looks kind of like the, uh, the uh, gears on a 10-speed bike on the back, mm-hmm. which basically changes the mechanical advantage. So if you built a, a fusee right the power going to the machine would be the same as the gear, as this fusee gear uh, 
unwound the spring basically and kept the power that mainspring even throughout the uh, the day or the week that mm-hmm. the clock was wound in. It's a little complicated, but it, it worked if it was set up right yeah. and, uh, and enabled spring-wound clocks to be close to the accuracy of weight-driven. Now, I think of the, those springs that I've seen in the Fusey watch are really like little like wire almost instead of the flat spring. Right. No, what you're seeing is actually the cable that connects the fusee to the barrel that holds ah, the mainspring. Okay, okay. The mainspring is yeah. inside that barrel, oh, and, the, okay. and the energy is transmitted through a cable or a cord to this cone-shaped gear called the fusee. I see, I see. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're, uh, I could talk to you for hours, but uh, we're out of time, mm-hmm. and it's been absolutely wonderful. So, again, your website is... Uh, Belltime.com. It's B-E-L-L-T-I-M-E. If you forget, you can look for the Winslow Homer engraving by the same name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, thanks, too. This is certainly my favorite subject. We, uh, we only got the tip of the iceberg here, but uh, I'm ready when you are to talk more. I think we should do another podcast on a different part of clocks mm-hmm. at some point. Sounds good. Thanks so much. So this is Martin Willis with Bob Frischman, and we're signing off. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.